We're all good this morning? Awesome. I am so happy to be here today. Um, if you're new with us, by the way, welcome. We're happy to have you. My name is Weston. Um, John chapter 17 is where we will be today, starting in verse 6. We'll be in 6 through 19. And this is um, Jesus' farewell discourse. This is his final words to his uh, disciples. And after these words, he prays, okay? He's capping his final words to his disciples with a prayer, which by extension is is for us today, his church, his followers. And um, this is really massive if you think about it, because this final prayer, in this final prayer, we learn of Jesus's perennial concern for us, for his church. He's about to leave. And he gives his final prayer. So we learn his perennial concern for us, his church. He prays, Holy Father, protect them. Holy Father, protect. My first glimpse of holiness came when I was 19. Um, I had spent the prior nine years of my life partying and doing drugs. And I was literally on a bed of suicide. Um, I had lost all hopes. Yeah, I had spent my life looking for something worth living for, something meaningful, of course, in all the wrong places, right? And I had came up short. I was, as Dan had mentioned last week, uh, I was really hoping that I would die this death of despair. Um, all the, all the things I was, I was doing, all the sinful things, all the pride, the popularity, all the money, um, even the, the, the highs, they, they weren't satisfying at all anymore. And it was at that time I was uh, going to community college, and one day I saw this girl on campus, and I was like, wow, like she was attractive. But after I started getting to know her, I found out what was truly beautiful about her, what was truly attractive about her. The first thing that was different about this person is she went to church. And I was like, what? (laughs) I hadn't been to church in like 10 years. Like lightning bolts would strike me if I walked in there. But as time went on, I realized that everything was different about this girl. I mean, she... We used to have dare back in elementary school, dare to resist drugs. She had kept her promise, and she never smoked weed, and I did, you know, I didn't, you know. Um, she had, had saved herself for marriage, and, and I hadn't. Um, I, could, I could go on. Uh, she was happy. There, it seemed there was always a cloud over my head. Uh, she had convictions, and I had consistently capitulated and given in to peer pressure. She was generous. I really was selfish, and I knew it. And I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that someone like this ideal person that, that I, had, I had had in my mind, I had always wanted to be in life, that I had, had fallen so far from, I couldn't imagine that she had descended to hang out to what had become a low life like myself, literally. She simply wasn't like anyone I had met before. She was different. She was unique. She was holy. Yeah, sure, I thought she was pretty, right? But it was Jesus living through her. 
that was so much more different, so much more attractive, so much more beautiful. And that was my first encounter with holiness. It was Jesus living through his daughter in this world in a way that I had never experienced of this world. And my friends, I submit to you that that was Jesus's final prayer for his church when he, before he left. His last request that his followers would remain in this world, but entirely unlike this world, different than what we experience in normal life, holy. If you're taking notes today, our main point is that the call of disciple is to remain holy, distinct from the world, and yet holy in this world for the sake of the world. And there's three main pra- uh, facets that Jesus prays for us today. Um, number one, and that is he prays for us to be protected in unity because unity is holy. Number two, he prays that we would be untainted from the world and its enemy because holiness is this purity, this distinctiveness from the world and its enemy. Number three, he prays that we would be formed and made holy by the scriptures because the holy scriptures are holy. So I'm going to preface this by saying we can't go over everything today. We can't just do that in the 30, 40-minute sermon on Sunday, okay? So there's some things in here. Um, I'm not glossing over those. If you have any questions about anything, you can come talk to me. You can come talk to Dan after. But we're going to beeline for what Jesus is getting at today. He starts this prayer with a little bit of background about who he's praying for. Have you ever just heard that uh, person that when they pray, they always seem to be teaching something when they're praying? You know what I'm talking about? It's like they're, they're preach praying. Okay, so we all, okay. Am, am I the only one that does that? I, okay, that's like Easter, right? When the family's over and a lot of them are like, you know, they're not believers, right? Easter's there and you're like, Lord, we just, we just come to you and, and remember what this, this day is really about, Lord. The, the, you know, we're all going to die one day, we're, you know, and, and we don't, we don't really know what happens after the grave, but, but, we, but you wrote, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That, well, apparently that's okay to do sometimes because it seems that, I mean, if you read this passage, Jesus kind of does that here for us sometimes. He, this is parenthetical remarks like, all that I have is yours, Father, and all that you have is mine. And you're like, what does that have to do with praying for the disciples? I, I don't really get that. But, uh, you know, apparently it's okay to do sometimes. But what he describes here is that the follower of Jesus is really in the Father's arms before the world began. And then the Father gave them as a gift to Jesus. We are gifts of God to Jesus. This is just so, so beautiful. And so there's a lot of other things that he's kind of defining who he's praying for in these first few verses, but he gets to the meat and potatoes of it in verse 9. He says, I pray for them. He continues in verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you Holy Father, protect them by your power of your name, the name you have given me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. So this is the first point, okay? Jesus prays that they remain unified with a unity patterned after this beautiful dance of the Trinity. 
That's stunning, right? The Trinity, like we can't even fully grasp that. It's, it's, it's stunning, it's unique, it's beautiful, it's holy. And so Christian unity is holy. Now, this is a really huge burden on Jesus' heart because um, he's actually going to pray the same thing as we finish up this prayer next week. But for, for now, I mean, it should be apparent to all of us, right, that uh, unity is not something common we see in this world today, is it? I mean, we're living, in, in my few short years on this earth, we're living in the most divided time I have ever experienced. The political divide, the racial divide, the ideological divide, the COVID divide. Do we have to divide over everything? We're all divided. Every little faction is splintered, a million different tribes and camps, all with their irreconcilable differences. I mean, we can't even extend the courtesy of people being entitled to their, their views anymore or defending their views in the public sphere. We just cancel them because they don't agree with us. But church, we can't just point the finger this happens to us, too. We got to be honest with that. This is plaguing us, too. We often are so quick to jump ship or politic to satisfy our pride or egos. But Jesus prayed, Holy Father, protect them that they may be one as we are one. I want you to get this, though. Understand, unity is not uniformity, okay? It's not that we all wear the same clothes, have the same viewpoints, and the same upbringing. It's not that we all hang out with the same people of the same ethnicity, of the same life stage, of the same age, you know? Unity is the grandeur of a 100-person symphony all playing their different parts and different instruments to create one beautiful melody. Unity is holy. Not only is it holy, though, there's a power in unity. Jesus says, protect them by the power of your name. There is a power in unity. You know what they say, right? There's power in numbers. It's true. Unity is one of the ways we, as a body, find the power to live out our faith. See, we've seen the negative effects of mob mentality, right? We've seen that all too much lately. It's, it's powerful. It's powerfully destructive. But holy unity empowers us to live differently. In a day and age where mob mentality, groupthink, and social media algorithms unite the world's factions against each other, the church stands in holy unity as a counterculture of love, forgiveness, generosity, empathy. In the early church, they were so motivated by this that they, they sold their possessions and gave generously to the needs of people. Many were compelled to go to the farthest reaches of the earth to share the love of God at the cost of their life. What if we, we're empowered dude, in, this, in these communities that we're, we're getting together during the week, in this unity that we're striving to keep. What if we were empowered to share our faith boldly? What if we lived irrationally generous? The world was like, what? What if we scorned the fear of what others thought of us, scorned the fear of rejection, 
that'd be powerful. That'd be beautiful. That would be holy. Unity, my friends, is holy because it exemplifies the most powerful and beautiful unity in the universe, the Trinity. And that's why we strive for it. We strive for reconciliation. We strive to forgive. We strive to overlook wrongs. We strive for humility because there's a power there that the world just isn't offering. In fact, they can't. And that's attractive. That's alluring. That is holy. Jesus prays that God would protect us from being divisive and we would remain in holy unity. Moving on to our second point now. Jesus continues his prayer. We're going to look in verse 14, if you're following along. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here we come to the heart of Jesus' prayer, right? And it's, it's made evidence in, in this redundancy that he says here. It's this tension of being in the world, but not of the world. And the need for protection for us not to veer too far in any one side. The call to be in the world but not characterized by the world's way of doing things is what he means when he prays. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. It seems here that what Jesus is getting at is that um, he envisions Satan as trying to tempt the church away from the purity um, and distinctiveness to be just, just come like, like everyone else, nothing unique. Our second point, holiness is untainted by the world and its enemy. Holiness is being untainted by the world and its enemy. But I want you to notice something right off the bat. If you haven't caught this already, this entire prayer is modeled after the person of God. Remember, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, protect. God is holy. He's unlike anyone else. He's unique. He's set as part. That is what holy means. So not only is his power unmatched, his wisdom infinite, his uh, existence immortal, but his love is undying, his mercy inexhaustible, his forgiveness boundless. God is holy in every single way. He's entirely unlike anybody else. But he's not simply distinct and distant. He's personal and he's intimate. Like a loving father, like a loving parent, holy father. In theological terms, we call this the transcendence and imminence of God. God is far above, beyond, and, and separate from his creation, yet he's in and through all things. And so Jesus' prayer is that we would be like God. We'd be separate and distinct from the world, yet, yet very intimate in the world like, like yeast is to dough to affect change in the world. Now, if you remember uh, from a few weeks ago, uh, when we think, when we hear about the word world in these contexts, Jesus isn't talking about the planet, like the physical planet, right? Um, Don Carson says, the world is the created order in rebellion against God. There's a, a brilliant theologian named Dan Braga. Uh, 
I'm sorry, I had to do it. He said, the world, it really helps put some teeth into this. The world is the combined beliefs, practices, traditions, values, and judgments created by fallen humans and fueled by satanic deception apart from God. I think it's a really good definition. In, very good. He's an amazing, yeah, amazing theologian. Um, in the words of uh, the Apostle John, 1 John 5, 9, he says, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And the, and the picture is not that everything is like completely against God, but that like a puppet master, the devil is swaying the combined beliefs, practices, traditions, values, and judgments of our culture, distorting them just enough to keep people away from what's 100% good, true, and godly. This means we have to be very careful not to just ingest everything uh, our, our, our media feeds and culture tells us. The kernel of truth in a society's values and judgments is exaggerated or diminished just enough to keep people off course. Now, history has proven that this call to be in the world, in the thick of this culture, but not characterized by it, is actually harder than you would think. History is replete uh, with examples of monks who would, you know, shelter themselves in monasteries to escape the world, or groups who would become so relevant to the culture to be of any real use. For us and our circle of churches, I would venture to say that our biggest temptation is not to, to run and to escape the world, but to uh, become looking just like the world. And so the three main temptations I see of the evil one for us today are moral, material, and ideological. Moral, material, ideological. Now, if you had asked me 10 years ago when I was a brand new spunky Christian, you know, what do you think, uh, what do you think it means to be worldly? I would have uh, read off some moral teachings of the Bible. I would have listened, you know, keep the sanctity of sex um, only in the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. I would be like, abstain from, you know, drunkenness. Like, it's okay to have, have a beverage, you know, but let's abstain from drunkenness. I would have said, you know, maybe have no unwholesome speech, you know. And these are definite areas uh, that the follower of Christ is called to look radically different than uh, the world. I mean, we, we don't hit the bar Friday night and, 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 and get drunk like the world does. The weekend has arrived. You know, that's, that's not us. We don't, um, uh, we don't speak like a sailor. Forgive me if you are uh, in the Navy or, <laughs> or you have a sailboat or something. Um, forgive me, you have become the proverbial bad mouth, Joe. Um, we, don't, we don't profane the profound physical, emotional, spiritual union that takes place in the act of sex by having that outside of its sacred confines. But if you were to ask me today, what are the temptations of the world? I would also add that they're materialism and ideological idolatry. Materialism. We often keep seeking security just like the world, and it's never enough, right? 
come on, let's be honest. It, it really, I mean, we live in San Diego. It's never, it seems like it is never enough. Like if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that house, if I could just, friends, we must remember we are the top 5 to 10% richest people who have ever walked this planet. Like that is the reality. We often pursue um, in the name of security and necessity simply luxury and comfort. Remember what Jesus said? He said, do not worry about food, what you will eat. Don't worry about uh, your clothing. Don't worry about adequate housing. The world runs after these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. What Jesus is saying is that our financial considerations are not to be at the top of our list of decision makings. When it comes to our schooling, our education, when it comes to our career choice, how is God calling me to seek first the kingdom? When it comes to our everyday expenditures, Am I seeking first his kingdom or am I looking to build mine on this earth? And lastly, but equally important, is ideological idolatry. It's a, it's a big temptation. Some are saying that this is becoming the greatest contaminant of the church for the people of, of God right now. And I, I would agree. Again, um, Jesus prayed that we wouldn't be like the world. And what do we see in the world? Everyone is divided along ideological lines right now, right? The left versus the right. Um, this economic policy versus that. Uh, this news source versus that news source. Um, this policy on COVID versus that policy on COVID. This social justice cause or that one. Like, which one are you in? And it's, it's, Again, it's, it's not that these aren't important and that they shouldn't be discussed. Like, I'm, I love talking about these kind of things. Like, it's not that they're not important and they shouldn't be discussed, but they're not definitive marks of the people of God. These are hills that the world dies on, but there is only one hill that Jesus died on. That was Calvary for the sin of everybody in every camp. When the person in blue or red or black or white becomes such an enemy that we can no longer love that person to Jesus anymore, we have ceased to become unique or useful to this world at all. We have nothing to offer it. Now, really, what makes this ideological idolatry component um, confusing is that really, Every group wants to kind of claim the sanction of Christian principles, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this um, years and years ago when he saw the contamination of church during World War II. And we have to understand that just because an ideology or a social cause claims some corner of biblical basis doesn't mean it's even carried out with God's right heart. And this requires us to be very, very careful to the, idolo- uh, I, sorry, the ideologies that we adhere to. I hope we're not having any idol- uh, idolatries that we're adhering to. 
But we are going to have some uh, ideologies. We're going to have some beliefs. We have to be careful what we adhere to, though. If it's not 100% God's will done God's, God's way, then it can't receive our wholesale allegiance. Jesus' utmost concern for his church was that we would remain holy, untainted by the world, morally, materially, ideologically, and this leads us right to our last point and prayer request of Jesus. How do we know what holiness looks like then? How do we discern what is morally, materially, ideologically pure or impure? The answer is found in Jesus' final request, verse 17. He says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And a side note real quick. The word sanctify is really just the verbal form of the same word we've been talking about, holy. You could say holify. Father, holify them in your truth. It's, it's, the same, it's the same exact root. So there it is. Holiness is found in the holy scriptures. Right? That's no, no coincidence, right? Holiness is found in the holy Bible. Right? That, that kind of makes sense. Um, because the Bible is the standard. It's the benchmark by which we measure everything. It's interesting that in Paul's also departing words to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says this exact same thing. He says uh, to 2 Timothy 3.16, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Holy Scriptures are what teach us and equip us in everything we need to live righteous and holy lives, he says, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what he means when he says God breathed, because they come from God. Now, if you're like me, the very next question would be, think like me? Okay, nobody thinks like me in this room. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to, actually. You wouldn't want to. Um, it would be, well, how do you know that? How do you know it comes from God? I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> I like to dive into, you know, the history of textual transmission, text criticism, and the dating of these writings to show that there is a very, very wide consensus, even among non-Christians, that these are, are, are the most reliable ancient documents on the earth. Like, if we can't trust the, the veracity of these, like, there's no reason to tr trust the veracity of, like, any ancient history, okay? But I think there's an easier way to demonstrate that these the scriptures are divine. And that is the scriptures are self-attesting. They're self-attesting. See, even a cursory reading of the Sermon on the Mount is enough to demonstrate that. This is probably the most widely distributed piece of religious literature on the planet. And it contains the highest ethical and moral teaching the world has ever known. We'll just do some readings through this briefly. Matthew chapter 5. If you just want to listen along. Matthew chapter 5, these are the words of Jesus. 
We'll just start with a piece on non-retaliation, verse 38. He says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Someone pokes out your eye, then you poke out theirs. Someone knocks out your tooth, you knock out theirs, right? Just perfect justice, perfect retaliation. But he says, I tell you, anyone, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What? Like, who, who does that? Like, who, what? Who would, why? Like, who does that? He goes on to say, and if anyone wants to sue you and, and, and take your shirt in the court of life, hey, say, it's okay. We don't need to go to court. Just take my coat also. You can have that too. Who does that? If anyone forces you to go one mile, this is what the Roman soldiers would do. They would have um, the people carry um, inmates' crosses up to the hill, and they would force them to take their cross. Just say, no, it's okay. I'll take it too. Don't worry about this. I got you. Who does that? He goes on in verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who does that? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. God, our Holy Father, does that. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those only who love you, what reward will you get? If you greet only your own people, what more are you doing? Doesn't the world do that? But you, you be perfect like your Father in heaven. Friends, this book is not merely a product of this world. It is from a holy God. It teaches us how to live like him. We must be saturated in the scriptures because it shows us what holiness is. Mahatma Gandhi said, if all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be Christian." That is our mission. Right after this, in verse 18, Jesus says, you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And so here I was. I was getting to know this person. I was attracted to her, but I found out that it was Jesus in her that was so much more beautiful, so much more attractive. That was what drew me to her. And one day she invited me to church. She sat right in the front. I was like, remember, I hadn't been to church in 10 years. I was shaking like a leaf. I was like, so, what am I doing here? I was so nervous. And the pastor started speaking and he was sharing the gospel. He started talking about how a holy God hated that, that, we, that we partook in what makes this world so twisted and broken. We partake in sin. But he said that like a good father, God still loved the world. So he pursued us even though we often rejected him. 
He told about how God came to this world and donned the apparel of fallen humanity. He lived perfectly to be the substitute for our penalty. The holy God became sin and traded his holiness for our sin to make us holy. Well, death couldn't stomach this. Death and hell couldn't stomach this. And three days later, they regurgitated him out of the grave. Now with a clean slate, he fills those who believe in him with his holy, get this, holy spirit to empower them to live a holy life. The pastor asked if anyone wanted to surrender their life to follow this person, Jesus, and I raised my hand. I said yes 12 years ago, and my life has never been the same since. Jesus ends on verse 19 with this. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. Jesus set himself apart for his mission to the cross so that we could be sanctified, so that we could be made holy. Friends, we have truly been made holy. And we have the power to live out this identity that God has given us. Church, Jesus's dying prayer for us was that we would be holy, distinct from the world, yet holy in the world for the sake of the world committed to one another in community, devoted to the Holy Scriptures, empowered by the Holy Spirit, let's be the answer to his prayer. We can do this because God has made us holy. We can live out this life he's called us to, unified, humble, serving, forgiving, under the scriptures, different than the world, attractive, alluring, beautiful, because of what Jesus has done for us. Let us be those people. I'm going to pray, and um, the worship team, if you want to come up, let's all bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you so much, God, that you've, you've given us your Holy Spirit to be our our counselor, our friend, our comforter. And you've given us your holy scriptures as the blueprint, the, the, the plans for how to do this. You've given us the heart. You've given us the mind. And above all, you, you've given your life for us on the cross. And we just thank you for making us new. For thus who have believed in you, we know that we're not the same anymore. It's not attributed to anything we have done. It's all you. And so we thank you so much, God. And we just ask that, Lord, we would, we would live this prayer out in our lives. You're worthy, God. You're worth it. We want to look beautiful, attractive, holy to this world. Different is okay. It's what makes us beautiful.
It's what makes us unique and special. And you've gifted each and every one of us with that. Christ, live in us as we go back out into the world, into our workplaces, into our schools, our jobs, our families even. Lord, you know we need it there first, God. Help us. We pray this in your name, Jesus.